Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And if it's your first time here, we cover the history of warfare from the Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. Today we have a special original commemorative episode to mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11. But this is a history of that day that I can truly say I've never heard before. I've been studying this period for the last decade or so. I lecture in terrorism and counterterrorism, and I truly knew nothing about this. As the World Trade Center was attacked and then rapidly fell to the ground, survivors were caught in an impossibly apocalyptic scene. They fled. They ran south as far as they could until the land ran out up to the water's edge. And in less than nine hours, at this point between land and sea, approximately 800 mariners aboard 150 vessels delivered nearly half a million people from Manhattan to safety. This was the largest maritime evacuation in history, and the only way I can put this into perspective is to tell you that it was larger even than the boat lift at Dunkirk. This is, you could say, the maritime history of 9-11, a heroic story that is only now coming to light thanks to Jessica DeLong. Jessica served at Ground Zero on the NYC fireboat John J. Harvey. She's interviewed hundreds of those who were involved, and we also hear about her own story at Ground Zero. So here is Jessica DeLong on Evacuating Ground Zero. Hi Jessica, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you so much for having me. No, not a problem at all. Thank you so much for coming on. It's going to be amazing to hear the history that you have to tell us and to hear from your perspective as well. We've got a range of episodes that we'll be broadcasting through this week to mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And, um, well, as someone who's been working on this topic for at least the last decade, I am shocked to find a part of this history which was just brand new to me. And I'm sure it's going to be brand new to so many of our listeners as well. But before we get into that, how's your summer going, Jessica? Uh, It's going well. It's been rather overcast this summer for the most part, which is perfect weather for me. My Irish roots run deep. And so (laughs) we're just at the very last throes, the last wisps of summer, and then it's straight off into fall. The last licks of summer, but you must be quite a fan of fall then as well. If you like a bit of overcast, slightly colder, then fall must be your favourite time of the year. 
Absolutely. How did you guess? <laughs> and so you do you live on the East Coast? I do. I do. I'm a New England native. And so we are very much attuned to our seasons here, unlike folks on the West Coast of the US, although they have their own seasons, but they're not real seasons. That's a myth. <laughs> it's true. So it's warm or it's freezing cold at night. Um, and then it's kind of warmish for the rest of the year. Yes, yes. It's very, very hard to judge time. In fact, when I lived on the West Coast, I had no idea when anything actually happened because there were no reference points of the kind that I'd grown up with. So it was very confusing. And then when I, when I lived on, on the East Coast, I came across this term that Americans kept on saying to me that in the autumn, in the fall, they were going leaf peeping. And I found <laughs> that the strangest term. What is leaf peeping, Jessica? Oh my goodness, I thought that was a British term. I, well, if it is, I'd never heard of it before, no. Well, leaf peeping is so funny that you should mention it because I really thought it was a British term. And the first time I heard it was actually right at the start of my work on Fireboat John J. Harvey, because the gentleman who invited me on a fireboat on a leaf peeping tour, I said no, because I didn't know what a fireboat was and I didn't know what leaf peeping was. <laughs> and so I rejected his offer. He was British. So I figured it was that thing. But um, no, leaf peeping is, I have since learned that you go and you check out the beautiful fall colors, you know, all of the death of the leaves chronicled in their, in their color turning. Yes, it is incredibly normal thing to do. There is no disturbing undertones or overtones. It is just to go and peep at the leaves. But if a British man asked me to go leaf peeping on a fireboat, I'm not entirely sure I'd say yes either. So we're, we're all supporting. <laughs> we're all supportive there, Jessica. Now, let's get into the topic of today. And just an immensely fascinating topic and one that I cannot believe has not been told before. I've heard some discussions of this as being kind of comparable to Dunkirk in terms of an evacuation in times of supreme emergency by water, of course. But it was even greater than Dunkirk. And I'm going to stop rambling on, Jessica, because I'm going to hand over to you to tell us what this history is that you've revealed to the world. I'm right there with you in terms of it being just incredibly surprising that after 20 years, we are just still learning new stories. But I think there's an interesting observation to make about that, which is that we as humans really sort of, we pick our narratives and we run with them for as long as we can. And so I'm really hoping that this 20th anniversary, we can unpack that a little bit and dig a little bit more deeply and really get at what I think is actually representative of the fabric of who we are as humans. And that's a pretty big bite to take right at the beginning. But that's really what I think this story represents. In terms of what happened, yes, I certainly don't want to diminish the rescue at Dunkirk. It was a phenomenal operation. It was under fire. There were a lot of things that make it different from what happened in New York Harbor that day. But in terms of some very distinct differences, it's important to recognize. So Dunkirk, as we know, was a planned operation. And there were, you've probably seen the black and white photos of people making phone calls. They were, everybody was trying to marshal resources. And so as many people know, there were in fact private vessels that were either commandeered and sort of plucked. <laughs> they couldn't find the owner. They just sort of took them. Or they were largely actually sailed by military personnel. So there is this mythology. There were some private citizens running private vessels, but very, very few comparatively. And so it's not to diminish those efforts, but it was a really important story to tell because if you look at the circumstances, Dunkirk was 
it was a retreat, right? And so you need to find a good narrative to make that acceptable. So what happened on September 11th was very, very, very different. And first thing that many people don't realize, even if they've heard about the evacuation, they think that the Coast Guard came in and told everybody, okay, this is what we're going to do, folks, and let's go rescue some people. And that is not what happened at all. What happened was that this was an entirely spontaneous, unplanned, individually driven operation at the beginning. So within the first minute after the first plane hit, you have an emergency of some sort at the World Trade Center. So the people who know that when there's an emergency at the World Trade Center, even if it is an accidental small plane, as many people believed that first plane was, even in that case, transportation shutdowns at the World Financial Center mean that the ferry boat operators are going to, it's going to change their day. So even at the most benign, it's going to change their day. And even if this is an accident, instantly you have people who are injured. So that's the other thing is that we now look back as we do with everything in history, we can piece together very concretely what the timeline was. We can see the cascade of catastrophe unfolding on that day, but no one knew what was going on. And it's really hard to recapture that after the fact. So you have immediately ferry boat operators serving as floating ambulances and delivering people off the island because depending on where you were geographically, which actually decided the fates of people throughout the whole day, that was the quickest way to get medical care was on a boat. So right away, immediately, even if it's not a terrorist attack, you have maritime involvement and these mariners just hopped to it and helped people who were injured get on the boats and get cross over to the New Jersey side and get help. And it is an island. I mean, of course, it, it more broadly is an island. But when you come down to that part of New York City, it is largely surrounded on that corner by the New York Harbour all the way around. And so the easiest way in and the easiest way out from that point, especially when you're going to have emergency services rushing through by road and you have the shut off of the train lines and the underground at that point, well, really, when it's chock-a-block like that, the only way in, the only way out is going to be by boat, isn't it? At a certain point in the day, all the bridges and tunnels were shut down, all the mass transit options, which, yes, Manhattan is an island. And this is the truth, despite the fact that everyday New Yorkers, we forget that fact because we're just Absolutely. so used to just hop on the subway, get on the bridge or whatever. So the only way on or off an island is over a bridge, through a tunnel or by boat. And at a certain point that day, there was a, you know, sort of a gradual clampdown of options that closed up behind people. The other thing that even New Yorkers, even folks who ran north that day or ran over the Brooklyn Bridge, what they don't realize, some of them, is that depending on where you were on that tip of Manhattan that you described so well, quite literally, once the towers have collapsed, there is debris and smoke and danger every way else that you might choose to go except by water. And so you could literally get cut off at the tip of Manhattan. And there are photographs in my book that the Coast Guard took where you can see that there are people stacked 10 deep, pressed up against the sea rails, desperately pleading for help to get off the island because of where they were located. Geography meant everything that day. So who was involved in this maritime evacuation? I can't believe we're talking about maritime history when it comes to 9-11, but let's go into this because it is fascinating. These were all volunteers, all civilian crews responding immediately to rescue survivors. What sort of ships and what sort of people are we talking about? 
Absolutely. So initially, the first first responders were ferry boats, because that's a path that they were taking that day regardless. They do their rush hour run. World Financial Center is a regular terminal for them. And World Financial Center, just for folks who don't know the geography, is sort of the plaza that's right adjacent to the Trade Center. And then it's right there along the water. And so that drop-off point becomes absolutely essential to the evacuation, especially in the earliest stages. Also in New York, we have water taxis, tugboats that get involved, dinner cruise boats, sightseeing vessels like the big circle line vessels, but also fast thrill rides like the Chelsea Screamer, which is a like, they take you out in a boat and everybody screams and they take you really fast and you get wet, right? So everything from that to fishing boats that came out from Long Island eventually, sailing yachts, Army Corps of Engineer vessels, and workboats of just about every kind you can think of. And so just imagine the ferries, at least at the beginning, they're able to pull in and out of their regular slip. And so the configuration of these different vessels is hugely significant in terms of their ability, where they can pull up along the shoreline, how high or low they are in the water is totally a determining factor for how well and how safely people can get on and off, especially you're talking about tugboats. They are not designed for passengers by any stretch of the imagination. And so you have all kinds of really just incredible improvised methods for getting people on and off from ladders to people climbing up fendering. You have people jumping off the seawall into the water sometimes. There are a lot of water rescues that happened um, that day. And then you also have people, unfortunately, jumping off the seawalls onto the deck too far down. It's a big tidal shift. And so it's really remarkable, the vessels that got involved. And just to give, it is true that this was a spontaneous and unplanned and sort of voluntary effort at the beginning. And at 1045, the Coast Guard made that first official call and said, if you want to participate in the evacuation, report to Governor's Island. And at that point, they made the really remarkable, really moving decision to facilitate the evacuation that was already underway rather than coming in and calling the shots and overseeing in a commandeering kind of way. And instead, they saw what was going on really well and really successfully. And they trusted the mariners who were already involved in this evacuation. And instead, they chose to facilitate it rather than trying to manage it top down, which is really an incredible choice to make that day that really is has everything to do with the success of the evacuation. Why did they make that choice? Is it a known thing that the mariners that operate in New York Harbour are a a kind of close-knit community that work well and communicate well together? Because everything I know about 9-11 that day is that communication was largely abysmal between the emergency services. And that's due to a lot of inter-service rivalry between the first responders. It's due to the poor communication networks that were already available in that area. And of course, the fact that when the first plane hit the first tower, it took out the mobile communication networks as well. So how were they able to be so successful in such a high pressure situation and in such an ad hoc fashion? It's a really good question. I think there are multiple answers. One is absolutely the professionalism of the mariners that day. The fact that they knew their vessels, they knew the vessel's capacities, and they knew the harbor relatively well. And they knew how to get information that they needed to be able to make sure that they didn't run aground. But you have 
if you picture tugboats, a tugboat is kind of like an iceberg in that there's a lot that is below the waterline, right? There's a lot of boat below, and those are called deep draft boats. And so if you have a deep draft boat going into shallow waters and you tear out the bottom of your boat, that's not making the situation better, right? New York Harbor is a working waterfront town. I mean, that's how the city was founded because of the sheltered harbor, which means that there are all of these obstructions. If you look at the nautical charts, there are all of these obstruction, 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 where all of these places places where you do not want to just take your deep draft boat. So knowledge of the harbor was a big piece of it. And communication, the marine radio was overwhelmed at times. And mariners were mindful of trying not to clog up the airways with unnecessary chatter. At certain points, as things worsened, the towers come down and the dust is so thick that at some points there are mariners who are operating by radar alone, literally zero visibility. And in fact, the particulate matter in the cloud was such that the radar actually couldn't function at certain moments. And so these folks are coming in blind, piloting their boats blind in unfamiliar territory. And so I think a piece of it is that as a mariner myself, I know that the whole job is everything is going fine, everything is going fine, and all of a sudden it isn't. And that's just, that's what the job is like. There's something that goes wrong. There's some mechanical failure. There's some natural condition that has changed, some wind or weather shift. The barges come undone. There are all kinds of things. And so mariners are very well accustomed to managing risk and improvising solutions turning it around really quickly and finding an answer. So that was a piece of it. And I think also it was really a profoundly brave decision for the Coast Guard to make, to just, you know, have faith in the folks who are running their boats, but also in speaking with the Coast Guard leadership, I noticed that it was like a trickle down effect. The top leaders that day had faith in their personnel and those folks had faith and confidence that they could do some creative rule breaking as necessary to get the job done and that they would have the backup. So it sounded to me with the folks I talked to like a very constructive working environment where people could really bring their best selves to the job at hand. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. And give us a sense of the scale here, because of course you mentioned Dunkirk, but how many boats are we talking about and how many people are we talking about in terms of being evacuated? So it's kind of boggles the mind. And I did so much checking and double checking and over re-double checking and looking at different sources to triangulate the numbers. And it does look like the very best estimates we have are that between 400,000 and 500,000 people were evacuated by boat that day. And this is taking place within nine hours and it's happening spontaneously. And you look at the numbers in Dunkirk and it looks like 338,000 allied troops were rescued by boat and it was about 800 boats and it was nine days. So the maritime 9-11 boat lift, you're looking at 400 to 500,000 people in a span of within nine hours. And there were more than 150 boats that participated, but having a specific number is tricky to find. And the best estimates that we've been able to gather are participation by about 800 mariners. And those are onboard vessels, but also dockside and on the shorelines. There were different specialties that were helping with the onloading and offloading. And so about 800 mariners participating. That is truly incredible. And you're right, it boggles the mind. It's hard to imagine how that is even possible in that short amount of time and in that sort of environment. And an environment that got considerably worse very, very quickly. Tower 2 fell within 56 minutes. Tower 1 fell within 102 minutes. So what goes from being an operation where, you know, there may well have been a terrible accident and then, of course, the second plane hits and everyone starts to wonder whether this is deliberate, but still the towers are standing. It goes from it being an evacuation in far calmer conditions, and it's strange to say that, but comparatively calmer, to then conditions where you cannot see a thing. In that situation, as mariners were trying to function largely blindly in those conditions, did they also manage to help on the ground as well? Were they able to try and guide people to the boats, guide people to the places where they can get onto the harbour and get onto the ships? Did they have any other role or function during that time of 9-11? Well, the folks who were connected to the maritime industries who were landside did play that role in sort of directing people to the boats. But what I found over and over again in all of the reporting and interviewing is that many people just instinctively went to the water. Part of it is quite literally, you can't breathe. People could not breathe. And I recount a story in the book of... It's a really harrowing story where it's a young woman. She has 
this is her first job after college. She is working at the New York Stock Exchange and she ends up basically caught in the, she's trying to evacuate and get away. And she gets caught in the collapse of the first tower that comes down. It is so profoundly overwhelming that she and the woman who she's with, both of them jump into the water. And she's actually a, a sailor. I think she was like in the junior Olympics as a sailor. So not a maritime working waterfront person, but she is not a stranger to the water. And she said, I know how crazy this sounds, but literally there was no oxygen in the air. And so I kept bobbing under the water to find some oxygen to breathe. And so she just does this over and over again until the sky clears enough just at the water line for her to be able to breathe. So there were mariners and firefighters were directing people to ferries, both firefighters who were working aboard the fireboats, but also police officers were doing that. And then as it became clear how many boats were involved, word spread on the ground for people to find the boats. And many of the folks who worked in the World Trade Center and the World Financial Center, they were familiar with the ferries. That's how they got to work in the mornings. And so they had this concept that maybe maybe the ferries would be available. Now, it's important to remember that, as you say, the conditions just got just exponentially worse as time went on. And we didn't know that, okay, the last tower will come down at 520 in the evening. We didn't know what the end was. There was no power of retrospection in this point, right? And so you have ferry boats at the beginning being able to use their regular slip, but then as the towers come down, they no longer have access to that area. It's completely covered with debris, and also there were fears of gas line explosions. And so they keep getting pushed further and further north, that that's where they have to now onload passengers. And now they're no longer in their, their regular slip. So instead, what they're trying to do is keep their boats against a seawall with zero infrastructure, no fendering, no tie-ups, no nothing that's designed for any vessels, and manage to buck the tide to be able to keep their nose against the seawall so that they can get passengers on. And so it becomes a much more harrowing sort of nautical situation as time goes on too. And the currents of New York Harbor are extremely powerful, really strong. There were a number of people who whether out of desperation or out of delusion that they were going to swim to New Jersey, which is a mile across. And for most of us, even on a good day in a nice glassy, smooth pool, that's a nice temperature with no currents. That's a stretch for a lot of us to swim a mile. That is not the Hudson River at this point at all. And not only are there ripping currents just on a normal day, but now you have vessels of all sorts. The wake action is tremendous. And there were many, many, many people rescued from the water that day by vessels. And people, I'm sure that we don't know their fates, ended up going out to sea. I'm sure we lost some folks that way. I was going to say, yes, many, many folks that I'm sure were not rescued that day as well. Does every boat that's involved in this operation make it through that day unscathed? Or do we have reports of those that are damaged or even that go down during this mayhem, this chaotic situation? I have not heard of any sinkings or any serious, serious damage, which is really, really incredible. It's remarkable. And it just does highlight that professionalism and their ability to work together in almost like a choreographed dance around each other. It's it's crazy. It really is. And it's, you know, as I've said, it's a testament to the professionalism of the Mariners and their knowledge. And 
the communication piece is interesting to me because there was plenty of salty language that day. So it's not like everybody was kumbaya, you know, working together in that way. But that's actually part and parcel to the maritime world, you know, it's like, get the thing out of there. And probably a lot of other words I can't say on your podcast. But that's a part of the communication that happens. And that's actually a part of the close knit nature of the maritime community is that everybody speaks each other's language and they get the job done. They get the job done. And the fact that there was, I mean, there was certainly superficial damage to boats and even more just in terms of the fact that you have an entire shoreline that at one point had had 76 miles of usable frontage for waterfront industry. This was a working harbor and much of that had already been plucked up by 2001 and replaced with sparkling walkways and esplanades and quite literally over and over again, this very particular structure of this railing came up in my research because at the top, the railing curves inward to keep people off of the river. And so you have some examples where you have firefighters on the John D. McKean literally cutting out sections of the railing so they can function more easily. And you also have people climbing up this very awkward thing to get onto boats in all of these locations. And so it's really striking to see this New York Harbor that is sprung up because of its waterways, forget its maritime history and have no infrastructure. There were big boats tied to trees. They were tied to trees. And in fact, there was a parks department police officer who came over and said, you can't tie to the trees. And one of my crewmates said, so call a cop. (laughs) There's another instance where it was actually a police officer. It was a NYPD Harbor Unit vessel, and to make it more convenient in a certain, uh, it's called South Cove, and it's just a little bit south of the Trade Center, and to make it more convenient for the shallow draft boats to come in and bring passengers on, the (laughs) captain of this boat just went and had his crew tie lines to the wooden railing and just pluck them off one by one. And then he actually, someone said, hey, you're destroying property. And he's like, look around, Sarge, there's property destroyed all over. So like I said, it's not that it's all peaceful and warm and fuzzy, but instead it was about getting the job done. And so many people were rescued that day. It's just remarkable. Tell us, Jessica, where did the boats take the people who were being rescued? Was this over to straight over to Brooklyn as quickly as possible so they could get back over? Or was this over to... I don't know, Staten Island or something like on the ferry through there, where were people taken? And what were the scenes like on that side? Were release stations established? Was there some help for them on the other side? Yes, definitely. And the answer to that question is everywhere. Any shore that seems safer is where they were taken. So the most direct route for many of the vessels was to cross the river over and back to New Jersey. And so as the morning went on, there were triage centers set up. And so you can see photographs in my book of these color-coded tarps that are set up so that the emergency medical professionals can know whose injuries are most severe and who needs to be addressed first. And so that was one place that was set up. But the Staten Island Ferry can carry so many people. And they went over and back, over and back to Staten Island because they were going to take advantage of their ferry terminal, right? Because that's a safe place to disembark people. People were taken to Brooklyn. Some of the dinner cruise boats went and took advantage of the terminal in Brooklyn where the NYPD harbor unit is stationed so that there were police officers who said, oh, I know where we can go and offload people. So it was basically anywhere you could get them. 
And there are these photographs sort of exemplifying the improvisation where you see that tug crews have painted on bed sheets like Hoboken, which is the name of a city in New Jersey. Because when you think about it, people desperately wanted to get to safety, but also when bad things happen, you want to go home. And you certainly don't want to get caught off the island if your home is on the island necessarily, right? If you live way uptown and you feel like that's a safer place to be, but it's tricky because you don't know the future. But the idea of sort of establishing a makeshift ferry on a tug that like, okay, if I board this boat, I'm going to go to Hoboken, which is where I want to go. That offers some comfort to people too. And so just the wherewithal and the thoughtfulness of being able to give folks a destination of where they were going to end up because you could be totally stranded. And there were people stranded. You know, there were people who lived actually right in that area. There's a story, a really difficult story of a little girl. She's four years old and she's with her nanny and they live in a townhouse that's very, very close to the trade towers. And the mother calls when she hears what's happened at the trade center. And she says, stay there, I'm coming. And the nanny is there watching this escalating crisis and wanting to do right by the mother. And finally, she ends up evacuating. The both of them are barefoot. She's running. The tower is coming down on top of her. And she gets caught up. It's a longer story, but she ends up on the New Jersey side. She's never been to New Jersey. And here she is, the nanny with this four-year-old who lives in Manhattan. And now what? And so much of What's been really powerful to me in reporting this story is to find the humanness in all of these stories. And we've had so much drama around September 11th, and I don't mean it in a derogatory way because these instances were dramatic, but it's so important to remember that these are people who are going to carry the weight of these moments for the rest of their lives, like that little girl who carries that moment and she carries it in her body because of the dust exposure because she got really sick and she carries it psychologically so the humanity displayed by mariners who did their very best to help people to make them more comfortable to there was a pregnant woman who boarded a tugboat and the deckhand made a point of finding you know a coil of line for her to sit on so she's not just sitting on the steel deck and just you know these human connections that happened that was really what was so incredible that day was that when we're in moments of crisis, and I think it's what compels us when the plane's about to go down and you reach out and grab the hand of the stranger next to you, right? You're not thinking about, okay, who did you vote for? Okay, you know, what part of the country are you from? None of those things matter. Instead, it's just core shared humanity. And that is what was on full display that day. There was no, okay, you're not allowed on my boat, but you are. It was just, there is a person who is in trouble. And that means I'm going to drop off passengers on safe shores. And rather than stay there, I'm going to turn around and steer my boat straight back to the island on fire when we have no idea what's happening next. And Mariners did this over and over and over again so that hundreds of thousands of people went home that night. It's just a breathtaking story. Finding the humanity in such, well, an inhumane act. And it's so poignant to hear you say that, you know, people just wanted to go home. For anybody that I've spoken to that survived 9-11 or attended, they just wanted to go home. They wanted to see their family. They wanted to hug their loved ones. That was the first thing that came to their mind, and it shows you what's important. But like you say, the people that didn't go home and potentially could have gone home were these captains of the boats. And I can't imagine what it was like to finally get out of that 
dust-ridden air where you can't breathe, to get across the harbour, to be able to breathe and see the sunlight, and then to have the bravery to turn that boat around, to go back and to drive into what I can only envision as a war zone. Have you managed to speak to some of those people who were doing that time and time again, in and out for that nine hour period? Yes, many, many of them I interviewed and their stories are in my book. And for them, I think it's really important to keep in mind that clearly you and I can look at this and look back at it and understand that there was a choice that they made every time they did that. They tied up lines, they disembarked people, and they untied those lines and cast off and headed straight again to Manhattan over and over again. So we can see that as a choice. But for them, they said many things along the lines of, this is just what you do. This is just being decent. You would have done it too. There was no choice. This is, of course, we were going to do it. It was not even a question. Over and over again, they they had different ways to express that there was just, there was no choice that they were making in their hearts at that moment because they recognized that there were people in trouble. They had the equipment, the skill set, the wherewithal to be able to rescue them. And it just was not a question that that's what they were going to do over and over again. And it kept going. It kept going until there were no more people along the shoreline looking for help. There are lines, hours and hours long. You can see photographs, aerial shots of lines of people patiently, not pushing, not shoving, not being aggressive later in the afternoon and further north from the dust cloud, but people just waiting their turn to get on a boat and get off the island. And so there's so much division in the United States right now. There's so much division in the world. And it's just, it's heartbreaking that over and over again, we find ourselves highlighting those divisions and reinforcing those divisions when actually this story, this history that's been with us for 20 years, we have had access to this for all this time. And we somehow don't embrace this part of our heritage, this part of who we are and who we can be. And this is a moment right now where we are seeing the cascade of climate change and the pandemic and all of this. If there's any moment to show us that we are interdependent and absolutely interconnected, it's during a global pandemic in the middle of a climate crisis. We are absolutely dependent upon each other to get out of this. And we really need this story. We need to know that this is a piece of who we are. It can inform us of who we can be as well. It really does give us some level of faith back in humanity. So thank you for that, Jessica, for taking that glimmer of light out of such a, a dark incident. And of course, one other person that didn't go home during this period was your good self. And I know we're not here to talk about you and your work at Ground Zero, but I think it'd be really important and really useful for us to hear how the event transpired in the days and weeks that followed 9-11, because I know that you were part of the firefighting effort from September 12th on the fireboat John J. Harvey. Yes, so fireboat John J. Harvey was basically called back into service. Initially, the crew was evacuating passengers, just participating in the boat lift. And then what happened was when the towers came down, the water mains were broken. 
and the hydrants were obscured. So there was literally no firefighting water available at the Trade Center site for days following the collapse. And so there were firefighters just wandering around, ashen-faced, just there's no water, there's no water. And to be a firefighter and there are fires, we forget that not even counting the towers themselves and the pile that was aflame for four months following the collapse of the towers. I mean, these were raging fires, but there were fires raging all around the perimeter as well. And so these were serious working fires. And here are these firefighters who have no water, which is a really helpless, powerless feeling. And so it was fireboats, both the retired New York City fireboat from 1931 that I served on, that was called back into service out of retirement to pump water alongside the active duty FDNY vessels. And so we together provided the only firefighting water on site for days. It was really tremendous to be able to to be able to participate in some tiny way. And nothing felt like enough. And it felt... Um, I felt dwarfed by everything that was going on down there. And yet it was such an honor to be able to be there, to have that dust on my clothes and to be in that moment of history and being able to provide something, some kind of help for the firefighters who had just borne just such tremendous loss that day. Of course, and it was the firefighters who I believe had the greatest loss of all the services in terms of personnel. Uh, 343 firefighters, 343 FDNY perished that day. And to know a bit about the FDNY, it's a family. I mean, it's a family in the same way that boats become a family because we're crew and we're all stuck with each other, right? But there's a family where it's shared risk and they go in and they embark on extremely dangerous work together. And there's a residential component of it because everybody cooks together. So there's a real family and literally there's family too, because there are a lot of father, son, brother connections and sisters who end up being a firefighter as well. And so there were a lot of just heartbreaking losses that day. It was really, really, really awful. 2,977 people died that day. And that means that over 10% of those were firefighters alone. It's pretty tremendous. And, you know, just to put it in the context of where we are right now, it's very interesting to see what's going to happen with this anniversary in light of what's happening with COVID. Because in the States, we lost a thousand people in one week, the week that the Pfizer vaccine was given FDA approval, we lost a thousand people that one week alone. And how do we possibly move forward? How do we take in this much loss and this much grief? We are going to be confronting waves of grief for a very, very long time. And I think the only way forward is coming back to that shared humanity, is recognizing that every single one of those lives matters. Every single one of those individuals had a family, had people who loved them. And if we can open our hearts as we are observing this 20th anniversary of September 11th, open our hearts to all of the people who are grieving in, in I was going to say aftermath, but it's not the aftermath of the pandemic. We're very much still in the thick of it. And so if we can find ways to come together, which is tricky because in the aftermath of September 11th in New York, everybody came together. We stood shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, and people lit candles and they sang songs and they came together to grieve and mourn and just have that collective 
approach to getting through the trauma together. And it was a whole city, a whole country, a whole world, right? Who was in it with us in a way. And now even just keeping each other safe has meant keeping apart. And that's a really, really difficult thing to figure out how we as societies, as people can find a way to come together and grieve collectively, even as we're keeping each other safe and staying apart. It is a challenge unlike we have ever faced in our generation, for sure. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for your service and for bringing us this, well, it's a new history to us, but it's an ever relevant history and perhaps more so today than ever. Can you tell us the name of the book and where we can buy it? Absolutely. So the book is Saved at the Seawall, Stories from the September 11th Boat Lift. And it's available any place you buy books. Independent bookstores are always my favorite for purchases. Absolutely. Yes, we push the independent bookstores on this podcast. So please go out there and support your, well, your independent bookshops after they've reopened after COVID and everyone's feeling the pressure in the business world. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you for giving attention to this important story. I think we really need it. I appreciate it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.